Potential and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today, uh, helping to create a better tomorrow on some really unique fronts uh, with his research. Uh, today, we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Eric Baptiste, who is uh, the research director at the French National Center for Scientific Research, the uh, French state organization uh, focused on research, the largest fundamental science agency uh, in Europe. Uh, Dr. Batest has both a PhD in evolutionary biology uh, from uh, Pierre Marie Curie University, uh, as well as a PhD in the philosophy of biology from uh, Pantheon Sorbonne University. Uh, in addition, Dr. Baptiste heads the, uh, he is the co-director uh, of what is known as the Adaptation, Integration, Reticulation, and Evolution team there, uh, which is ultimately focused on developing novel methods and concepts, uh, in particular related to biologic networks in order to uh, get a deeper understanding of both evolution and aging. Uh, and specifically, their team uh, ultimately works to uh, enhance uh, current evolutionary theory by ultimately expanding the scope, uh, targeting additional objects of study, like so-called microbial dark matter, mobile elements, uh, as well as expanding uh, evolutionary studies towards more general models, able to uh, account for chimerism, interactions between various biologic elements from molecules to uh, as large as ecosystems. Uh, Dr. Batest is an author of, of literally hundreds of articles. He has four books uh, focused on the popular sciences that you can find uh, in Amazon. Uh, we're honored to have him with us today, though, uh, to talk about a lot of these interesting topics. Uh, Dr. Eric Baptiste, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's great having you, uh, Eric. I, um, you know, I'd love to start off because you know, I, I spent some time and I'm, you know, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but I did enjoy sort of going through your, uh, you know, hundreds of, of papers in the peer-reviewed literature. And this theme of um, mobile genetic elements, you know, show up, you know, quite early uh, in your papers going back a couple decades now. You had some really interesting papers on, uh, you know, how mycobacterium tuberculosis uses eukaryotic genes to, to help modulate the immune system uh, of people that infect. You have some interesting work on horizontal gene transfer in uh, in jellyfish and where they acquire their stinging cells from. Eric, take us back a little bit to sort of the beginning here and when sort of this theme of mobile genetic elements and sort of the inter-kingdom sort of communication, I'll say, uh, got you interested in, in, in sort of following this really unique path. I'll try to do this. It's a, it's a long story because 
you're right. It must have started about 20 years ago when I was a student. I was a PhD student in what was then called phylogenetics. And phylogenetics was about using one gene, look at a similar gene that you can find, for example, in human, in other species, yep. align those genes, and then from that, try to infer what could be the relationship between the species hosting the genes. That was called building a species tree that was uh, in order to identify what is uh, by scientists called the tree of life, which is not a religious thing here. It's just a big name to tell if we could relate each and every organism on Earth through a relationship of common descent. Could we guess what is most closely related to what? And to do this, people were using one gene at a time. That was as old as I am. But then, during the time of my PhD, people started to realize they could do this for more than one gene at a time. They could do this for hundreds of genes. So they started to build trees of family relationships, starting from many different genes. And what they found is that the trees disagree. Instead of always suggesting the same relationship between, say, uh, Homo sapiens is closer, closely related to uh, a chimpanzee and then more distantly related to mice and then even more distantly related to bacteria. For some species, for some trees, the relationships that were proposed were different. Mm. And people had to explain this. Either we were reconstructing the trees poorly or the genes were not telling us the same history, meaning that the genes were not exactly traveling with the species that contain the genes meaning that the genes were not strictly inherited by common descent from an ancestor to the descendant. And one explanation for this disagreement between trees that were proposing relationships that didn't seem to be the same. So for example, one tree would tell you bacteria A is closely related to bacteria B, but another tree would tell you bacteria A is closely related to bacteria C. Mm. And that was different. One explanation for this was to consider that the genes were travelers that they could move between species and they have been travelers since the past and that they are still travelers today. So some genes are moving across some species, which is called lateral gene transfer. Basically, some genes that are in some organism come not only from their last common ancestors or their parents, but they come from their neighbors. And that started a new uh, kind of studies of evolution that tried to account for the travels of these genes across species. And once you uh, were okay with the idea that genes could move between neighbors, then you had to figure out how were they traveling? What were the vehicles? And the mobile genetic elements were precisely the vehicles that could help the genes, or actually there were no intent here, move the gene from one organism to another organism. And among the mobile genetic elements are viruses or plasmids or other entities on which uh, genes can uh, be cut, and then the genes would move from one host of a virus to another host of the virus when the virus was switching hosts, for example. And so that's how it started. We wanted to know what was the extent of the data gene transfer, and also how we could include this in the big theories of evolution, because so far evolution was about finding what is related to what, to try to right. make sense of the diversity. And if we could make sense of the diversity using a tree, then we could say, look, these two species have four uh, limbs, for example. Or that might be because they are the last common ancestors that also owned four limbs. So with a tree, we had a recipe to not only organize the living world, but also go back in the past, infer how ancient organisms may have looked. But now that we knew that some features 
of organism could be encoded by genes that were jumping across different organisms. The very idea that we could guess how the ancestor were looking was becoming more out of reach. Because we can only try to infer what an ancestor looked like based mm -hmm. on what we know about its present day uh, descendant, if the feature encoded by uh, the genes is the present day descendant have come from that ancestors. Right. If, if they have moved around, then it's more messy. So we needed more tools, new methods to tell about evolution. And that's where the story now ends. In my lab, we developed tools that were based on network to try to capture the travels of the genes and to try to understand where they started their journey from and where they ended it inside. And continuing along um, that introductory school of thought now, um, I'd like you to bring in, uh, because you know, there's another component of, of what you do, and we'll go more into the details of it in a little bit, uh, but the theme of an interactome um, which again is present through you know a lot of your work, and you know I, I apologize. You know, when when I Google <laughs> interactome and I go to Wikipedia, this very basic definition comes up where it says an interactome is the whole set of molecular interactions in a cell. Now <laughs> that's a little too basic, um, clearly. And you know when we get into some of what you do in terms of protein-protein uh, interaction, protein-small molecule, the the interactions between some of these genes and viruses. The interactome is a much more complex concept in place. Take us for a little walk into how you think in your lab about what an interactome encompasses. Okay, another tough question, but I can see you're my biggest fan, so I will try to give I'm a big you fan. a decent answer. <laughs> so here we come. Um, what we appreciate about uh, evolution as being important is not only to understand the relationship between species, what is closely related to what in terms of being a parent of what, but also how the various organizations that are shaping the living world have evolved. And if you consider biology, you will notice biology is full of interactions. There are interactions everywhere. Molecules interact with molecules. Proteins, for example, interact with proteins. And uh, even cells interact with cells. But if we... Uh, we're trying to track this interaction, then we realize one thing, is that even within a simple cell, there would be plenty of networks of interaction. Because to make a cell and to maintain it alive, you need to have a series of um, basically instructions um, that are from genes that are being implemented and turn into RNA and proteins. And yeah. those are like the mini robots that would perform the instructions, but they would not operate alone. So genes are not operating alone, they build networks in cells, in bodies. Proteins are not interacting alone, they belong to networks. And so what we realize is that uh, you could look at almost any organism, and in fact any evolving system, as a result of interactions over time. And how do you model interaction? It's basically by um, representing a network between entities that are in interactions. So for us, what was very important when we were thinking about the evolution of interactomes was to try first to reconstruct the networks that are in the body of organism of interest, the molecular networks, what gene works with what gene, what proteins works with what protein. And we did that by, for example, drawing 
an edge between two proteins when they are in interaction. That's called a protein-protein interaction network. Sure. And so the simplest one would have uh, like uh, only two elements, one protein A and a protein B, and an edge between those two, if those two work together to perform a function. But then, of course, it's, it, it is much larger because there are thousands of proteins, for example, in a cell. So you end up having these networks. And what we're especially interested uh, in was what was the architecture of this network, because there is information in this architecture. The way different entities interact with one another makes some of their association and some of the process they support more or less stable, mm -hmm. more or less slow, more or less fast, or more or less robust to uh, various changes that occur during evolution. So what is key for us in the interactome is not only that there are interactomes everywhere, very important. We are build of networks and we belong to larger networks because we humans are members of communities. We are connected to other humans. We're connected to other species. Yeah. But in addition to that, there is a structure in the various networks that we are uh, analyzing. And what can we learn from this structure is a key point of our studies. Excellent. Excellent. So, you know, that leads perfectly into uh, my, my next point. So, you know, you are the, the co-director of, uh, as I mentioned in the bio, Adaptation, Integration, Reticulation, Evolution Laboratory. And, you know, I've read a little bit about it and it says, you know, continuing on what you were just saying, you know, looking at the foundations and the blind spots of evolutionary theory, focused on two universal aspects, as you were just saying, ubiquity of interactions in biology, ubiquity of microbes. Uh, Eric, say, say just a few words about AIRE, a little bit about how you set it up, when you set it up, a little bit of the team that you put together there. And, and you know, we'll, we'll get into aging in a little bit, but when one goes to your website, you know, aside from focusing on aging, you're, you're studying the in-depth sort of interactions of the microbiome, aquatic symbioses, a lot of other cool stuff is going on there. Take us through a little bit of history and, and sort of the scope of the, the research organization that you're running. Okay, so my team is actually run in co-direction with another very important team member, with uh, Professor Phil Lopez, with a prof in systems biology. And we have sure. been working together for probably 25 or 26 years. Excellent. And that is very important. This is about networking. This is about hmm. uh, having uh, effective interactions. So as we get along very well, people are happy to uh, also join uh, our, uh, our team and work with us. And the way we do this is, First, we are interested by evolutionary issues. So we try to see whether some uh, explanation that um, take into account the history, the processes that lead to the diversity and lead to the current architecture of network could help us better understand the world in which we live, how it came to be, and where it is going next. And that, that means we are very open-minded because in many respects, uh, if you have a question in evolution and you're a friendly scientist, a friendly linguist, a friendly philosopher, then we can work with you. So throughout the years, what we have been doing is basically collaborating with a diversity of experts from multiple fields who had an interest in trying to model the issues using networks and evolution. And, you know, Last year, uh, May of 2022, you uh, chaired a, a colloquium that uh, was entitled uh, Expanding Evolutionary Theories of Aging uh, to take into account symbioses and interaction throughout the web of life. Uh, and, and 
you know, in this colloquium, you know, you had people, you know, basically uh, you were focused on dissecting uh, the various sort of, I don't say leading theme, you know, whether it's mutation or antagonistic pleiotropy or disposable soma or a lot of the, the major theories uh, in evolutionary biology focused on aging. Uh, once again, you bringing in this concept of, hey, we're, we're not looking at interspecific ecological interactions, the symbioses, the microbiome associations and so forth. Talk a little bit about the aging part of the portfolio a bit, and we'll get into some of the really recent papers, which are really cool. But uh, when did you first start thinking about aging again in the portfolio of everything else you're doing and uh, thinking about the fact that, wow, you know, people are missing <laughs> a, a lot of important pieces of the puzzle that is aging? Well, you know, aging is a universal problem for humans. It is very important for our species. And we all have relatives who are aging and even died. And some of us are parents. And so can imagine that in the future, their children will be aging and eventually that means will be plagued with uh, aging associated diseases for years of life. So I started to consider this issue when I was faced with these various difficulties in my personal life and was willing to understand why, how and when uh, my friends <laughs> and my family members were aging. And being an evolutionary biologist, I turned to what I knew the best, which were evolutionary theories, which basically have, uh, offer some ways to explain um, deep, ultimate causes of why uh, organisms age. And I wanted to know whether I was satisfied with the answers of these theories to try to make sense of what I was observing around uh, um, family members and friends and the society in general, or whether these um, theories would deserve some enhancement. And the way I was uh, looking at them was first with a very uh, open-minded eye. I wanted genuinely to learn what uh, people had thought about aging and how to explain its causes, but also based on my former experience as someone who enjoyed to think about what is the contribution of microbes to a process, uh, where are the networks that are uh, involved in the process uh, taking into account. And of course, because the main theories have been developed uh, in the framework of the main classic evolutionary theory, then being myself someone who is challenging the classic evolutionary theories, I came up with uh, questions about the classic evolutionary theories of aging. And that's how it started. I identified some area of the evolutionary theories of aging that I thought I could help expanding by bringing more information about the role of microbes and by bringing in more information about how network-based studies of the molecular processes that are involved in aging could uh, bring new light to current theories, either to back them up better or either to lead them in novel directions. And and you've been uh, you know, along those fronts, Eric, you've been quite active publishing in, in recent weeks. Uh, and I thought it'd be fun just to, uh, to, to look at a couple of, of your most recent papers and just talk through a little bit of what you're doing here. And I'd love to start obviously with the, uh, the one from a couple of weeks ago in Molecular Bio and Evolution, um, the journal, uh, this one entitled Interactomics, Dozens of Viruses Co-Evolving with Humans, Including Influenza A, may actively distort human aging. And again, you know, you go into uh, the connections between you're focusing on influenza A, but how um, obviously viral 
components, encoding uh, whatever they may be, uh, can affect with senescence and, and all sorts of other processes. Uh, take us a little bit through this one, if you would, and a little bit of what, because, um, yeah, you know, the sort of the term that shows up a lot in this is age distorters and targets uh, that ultimately come from that age distortion. Take us a little bit into what you, you found out here, because I found this fascinating. Okay, so I will try not to be too long in doing so, because otherwise there is no way anyone follows the argument. But the I'll argument follow, I'll follow it. <laughs> yeah, you will, okay. <laughs> the, the argument is, is in fact pretty simple. Right. When you consider the causes of aging, where they may come from, roughly you can imagine two main venues. Either you age because of environmental causes that are affecting an aging organism from outside, or the organism age from inside because it, it owns some genetic uh, recipes that gets this organism to age. So you have uh, environment from outside, genes from inside. And the question I was uh, wondering about was the following. Could there be genetic causes of aging, not inside only the organism, but from outside the organism? Could there be entities that from outside our body, living usually outside our body, could bring their own genes in our bodies, connect their own genes to our own networks, also gene products to our own networks, and yep. then take advantage of our cells, take advantage of our bodies for their own evolutionary interest, which basically means for them to replicate better, for them to survive better. And this is an important point here, is that we are full of networks, we belong to network, and we have never been fully isolated. There is no one organism that is an island, and right. therefore, if uh, an organism is infected by viruses, what is going to happen is that the virus is going to bring in this infected organism in its host. It's going to bring its own genes. And the virus wants to do one thing. It wants to multiply in the host. And to do that, it's going to turn the host, part of the host, into a factory to multiply viruses. And to do that, the virus needs to do one thing, go inside a cell, express its own uh, little robots using yep. its own uh, genetic instruction, mess up with what is already in place in the cell of the host or in the body of the host to basically hijack the host processes. So viruses are super good at doing that. They do that all the time. Now what I was um, questioning was whether some viruses would target networks that contribute to our aging when they mess up the normal regular process of the host. Were some viruses interested, evolutionary speaking, meaning that they would benefit in terms of better replication to mess up aging networks of the host. Mm -hmm. And what we uh, looked for in that paper was first, what is the genetic potential of viruses to actually produce proteins that can interact with networks contributing to aging in humans in the following way? Are there some proteins in the, of virus that can interact with proteins of humans, proteins of humans that are themselves associated with aging? So we looked in uh, various uh, experimental evidence that were published uh, whether there were a knowledge about what viral protein is able to interact with that with what uh, human protein. And from that, we had a bold hypothesis, which was, well, look, if this viral protein is able to interact with that human protein, then maybe it can interfere with the normal functioning of that human protein. We will count for each and every human virus we know how many uh, proteins these viruses are able to produce that interact with how many human proteins involved in aging. 
are supposed to be involved in aging. And so we can come up with a list and we say for each virus, how many human targets in the human proteins it could interact with. Mm -hmm. And so we can identify that some viruses have high potential to mess up with a lot of protein associated with aging. And that some of the viruses have lower potential to mess up with uh, proteins associated with human aging. So we call these viruses that are able to basically mess up with uh, human aging as distorters when this benefits for the, to them for uh, their own reproductive success. And uh, we were uh, happy, in a sense, <laughs> to uh, uncover, again, some of the usual suspects, like, for example, HIV-1, which is yep. uh, a virus that has been proposed uh, in various publications to contribute to premature aging, was indeed a virus that was able to connect to many different uh, human proteins associated with aging, with its own proteins. And we can think of uh, various reasons why viruses would um, be happy to actually mess up with uh, functional aspects of their host. One good reason for that, for example, is that uh, <laughs> we fight our viruses. We have defense lines. And so a virus will do better if it is able to weaken our immune system. It can do that by killing our immune cells. It can yeah. do that by aging our immune cells. It can basically, in that sense, affect uh, our defense line and make them weaker. And by definition, we can say that an organism is aging when it functions uh, continuously less well. So if a virus comes and gets us to function less well uh, in terms of, for example, immunity, then we humans become more vulnerable to all sorts of threats, to all sorts of stresses, because our immune system is now weaker due to the virus has entered within all genes and has decided to fight our defense line. And if that fight has made us irreversibly weaker, it has edged us by the definition that an organism has edged when it is becoming more mm -hmm. vulnerable, function irreversibly less well, and then has a higher risk to die. Of the same threat, the same virus that will not kill me at 40 may kill me at 80 because yep. I've edged. And so we were looking at that and what we observed were those uh, edge distorters, those viruses that come in our body, use our body for their own benefit, and then, you know, they don't care about what happened to us, and in the process, edges. And in addition to the usual suspect, we found influenza A with very high uh, scores in our metrics, which means that it has proteins that can interact with many human-associated proteins. Yeah. That are uh, associated with many human proteins associated with aging. So the flu, the flu, in terms of genetic potential, could mess up a lot with our mm -hmm. aging networks. Now it remains to be proven that the flu does mess up a lot with our aging programs. And what we observed, in addition in our research, is that um, there is something called transcriptomics, which basically yep. says um, how uh, different processes are implemented uh, within an organism. So if you have a human, for example, that has um, many of its cells that are aging, it will typically highlight 125 biomarkers, 125 genetic instructions that will be turned on or turned mm -hmm. off in a very specific way. And so we uh, gathered uh, published evidence from these transcriptomes, and uh, we look whether when you're infected by the flu, you notice that uh, humans tend to uh, um, basically turn on and turn off the biomarkers associated with 
that you're asking is yeah. does it does it show um, a pattern suggestive of infections lead to lots of aging cells and that's what what we believe we observe for infection with the flu so not only does the flu have lots of genes to mess up with human aging but in addition upon infection it engenders uh, we believe um, an overload of uh, aging cells in yeah. the infected body so we think we don't like getting the flu too much because we know that the flu can be deadly when we have an acute infection but now we suspect it may also have some um, longer lasting problematic effect post-infection, especially uh, problematic for older people, because older people, they already have in their body quite a lot of aged senescent cells. Oh, yeah. So if you add to that to that load additional senescent cells, maybe at some point it's not good for the homeostasis, for the regulation, general stability of, of the body. So that was... Um, the idea of the paper, could there be interspecific interaction mediated by viruses that come with our genes, connect to our network to manipulate our network because they don't care about us. <laughs> they basically will reproduce better in this way and as a result would um, alter the normal course of our aging. Or maybe, and that's how I will conclude, maybe that happens all the time. In fact, this is a matter of co-evolution because all yeah. the time we're infected by many viruses, but this is not now um, fully uh, part of the classic theories of the evolution of aging. Right. Evolution is about what happens in some organisms that are related in population of organisms from the same species. And now we're talking about co-evolution. It right. takes partners from uh, multiple species to produce uh, the phenomenon of, of interest. So uh, what we have in theoretical term is, is an expansion because we say, if you want to understand aging, you can not only look within one species and try to identify what is the aging network of that species. That is important, but that's not enough. Right. You may also need to know with what other species this aging species is in interaction. Yeah. And uh, maybe then you get rid of this in interspecific interaction and you observe that the lifespan and health span of the no longer infected organism has changed. So that's that's the payoff, ultimately, beyond the yep. interest of explaining the theory. If we are really um, affected by edge distorters and we can prevent these edge distortions, especially the ones that are basically uh, accelerating our aging, then could we uh, save us some uh, terrible years of edge-associated disease? That's, it, it, it's fascinating. It adds uh, you know so much to the... To, to the picture in terms, especially as we talk about these uh, these pathogenic viruses, and I'm saying now, yeah, obviously with COVID, the last couple of years, it's a disease of the elderly. Well, yeah, but there's there's another piece to that. Maybe it's also making you older at the same time, so it, it potentiates that uh, cycle. And yeah, it's a it, it was a really fascinating paper. It, just a quick, this is one side note to that, Eric, and I was just wondering because. I mean, I know it's probably early in the days of this, but because you mentioned coevolution, and um, we we we've done a, a show a little while ago, and it was talking about um, sort of the the beneficial viruses and some of these viruses that uh, is specifically focused on uh, something called hepatitis G, which is called something else nowadays, uh, which doesn't make you sick at all and actually has some benefit. Do you think like down the road as you study some of these viral 
human interactomes that you actually find potentially sort of the why why some of these more ancient viruses are good for us in some context as well or is that is that potentially part of the program at some point it is it is absolutely because here i was highlighting the negative side of these interspecific interactions but it is uh, understood and assumed that there will be also mutualistic beneficial uh, sides to to this and in particular within our microbiomes which has this right. uh, Micro, uh, so for example, communities of um, microbes living in our guts and that are themselves um, carrying many, many phages, which are the viruses of the bacteria that lives in our gut, that live in our guts. Sorry for my English. Then uh, we have uh, certainly many opportunities for super complex interaction yeah. <laughs> with some phages being deadly to mean bacteria and therefore being good for us or, you know, another yeah. way around. So yeah. I think it's uh, really an um, an open research avenue here, and yeah. uh, surely we will benefit from some microbes, meaning that uh, will edge slower and better when connected to some microbes, and those may be phages, or some of them may be viruses, and some of them may be maybe bacteria. But yeah. I think what I wanted to to stress is that um, we need more systematic studies. Of right. these kind of interactions, and this yeah. has started, of course, um, and now the from a theoretical point of view, it's interesting to integrate the finding we could make into classic evolutionary theory. Because again, classic evolutionary theory they explain you why you age because you're a member of the Homo sapiens species, but yeah. they they are blind to this interaction that comes into it, and it should not be the case. So we need better theories to have better explanations. Excellent, excellent. Uh, that leads nicely into um, to the next paper, uh, very recent one: uh, network analyses unveil aging association pathways, evolutionary conserve for fungi to animals uh, in geroscience. Uh, and then just you know, I, I, I'll let you run with this because it continues what you were just saying. But you know, you you look across multiple uh, species here uh, again, looking at um, uh, so-called in this case you get longevity. Or laps, longevity aging associated proteins, of which you found many <laughs> in this particular study, uh, some which are even more, you know, mTOR is so hot nowadays, but a lot of them that were even more central uh, in the uh, aging equation uh, than that. Um, and then a lot of them which you say, hey, these can be very druggable. Uh, talk a little bit about this paper, if you would, Eric. Okay, so thank you for interest for that other paper, which unfortunately is not open access, but if people are interested, yeah. email me and I can send you uh, the, the PDF. Yeah. Uh, so here, again, we took our um, double perspective, being evolutionary biologists and caring for systems biology. So what we wanted to understand is whether we could uh, identify, there is a challenge to try to understand uh, why different members of different species age in the way they do or uh, fight aging in the way they do for these uh, champions of longevity, such as Bowhead Wells and you know many other species. And um, when people have tried to do this, they basically have compared the genes that are in the different species to find whether some genes in families are in common mm. and therefore may contribute in a similar way to aging or to fighting aging longevity. But um, what people have observed is that there is a limited overlap in the sets of gene families that are shared between different, for example, long-lived species. So that means that different species have different ways to resist aging. 
And likewise, different species have different ways to uh, fail uh, prey to aging. And we wanted to know whether using different methods that were basically not only looking for common genes, but common interactions, we could nonetheless find some conserved processes that would be shared and associated with aging between different species. So uh, the idea was if we could do this and we could find that, for example, humans share some very ancient evolutionary conserved processes associated with aging with other species, then maybe we could test in other species uh, various drugs uh, and to see how uh, aging of other species was affected by these drugs without doing anything to humans, which would be totally unethical, but by targeting uh, key central evolutionary conserved uh, interactions that contribute to either our longevity or aging. And so to know this, we started from the current networks of protein protein interaction in five species for which um, there are some known proteins associated with aging. And we wanted to know what is common between these networks associated with aging between yeast, which is a fungus, between drosophila, between C. elegans, which is a nematode, sure. between uh, the mice and between humans. And we wanted to find whether our last common ancestor had uh, contributed early process to our current aging. And likewise, we wanted to know whether the ancestor we shared with mice has also contributed some key processes associated with aging. So there was a methodological development here that consisted in inferring ancestral protein-protein interaction networks from present-day protein-protein interaction network. I started as a phylogeny thesist, trying to find a you know, relationship, I told you. But mm -hmm. here we were inventing phylosystemics. We didn't want to uh, infer what was the ancestral relationship, who is related to, we wanted to infer the ancestral processes of life. So for this, we needed to infer ancestral networks. And once we had done that, we could query this network uh, using uh, tools of network science, which basically can tell you what node and what interaction in a network is very important mm -hmm. based on its location, based on the architecture of the network. For example, if you live in a town and you are injured and you must go to the hospital, mm -hmm. it is a good thing if your hospital is basically at the center of your town because sure. then almost anyone can access the hospital. So the hospital location is very central. By contrast, if the hospital was far out, it would be very peripheral, but it would make um, it very difficult for some people to reach the hospital in time. So by the same logic, we were looking what nodes and what interaction in a protein-protein interaction associated with aging are very central. And probably if you do something to those ones, you're going to have more effects because they have more neighbors, because they are more at the center of the network than others. And um, so we, we developed this, this uh, approach, uh, inferred ancestral network, and what I will now shut my, will cut my story short, we uh, basically look for the following uh, kind of relationship. There are some known proteins associated with aging that have plenty of neighbors that are shared with other proteins not yet known to be associated with aging, but they have the same neighbors in ancestral network. And when you have two proteins with the same neighbors, it means that they entertain the same partnerships, molecular partnerships. Yeah. So they may play the same role. And so we predicted by a process called guilt by association that if yeah. we know that this protein 
is associated with aging or longevity, and it shares the same neighborhood significantly that with that other protein. Maybe that other protein too could be called or could be a candidate for um, an association with aging or with longevity. So basically, we wanted to find the best candidate in terms of evolutionary conserved candidate and central in the network. Yep. So that if we are hard pressed to say, what protein must we study to do something good to human aging? We say, well, look this one, very ancient, very concerned, very central. And we didn't know so far that it was possibly associated with longevity. Maybe yeah. it's a good idea to invest uh, our research on that one. And in addition to this, we had an extra layer uh, of analysis, which basically was telling us whether these new proteins associated with aging were also reported to have been associated with some diseases or mm -hmm. to be druggable. So if we are very, very hard pressed to say, what is the protein we must study to make a difference in a relatively short term uh, period, we could say, well, look at this one, very ancient, very central, and there are some drugs that can interfere with this, the action of this protein. So maybe you want to try with this one. But what we do in my lab is only we make predictions. We don't have tools to actually make experimental validation for them. So we offer them to the community and we say, this is our best guess of this hundred of proteins that uh, people could give a look at and maybe find something that may make a difference uh, about aging in the future. Excellent. Um, continuing along that, Eric, and I know this isn't aging related, but I, thinking about again, um, creating this novel information, creating you know, creating novel uh, targets, let's say for the broader community. I just wanted to ask um, if you could say a couple. This was a twenty twenty um, paper, and it was. Uh, this one's entitled uh, Rich Repertoire of Quorum Sensing Protein Coding Sequences in uh, CPR Candidate Filer Radiation Bacteria and, and Archaea uh, Associated with Interspecies Interkingdom Communication. And I just bring this one up because I, I, well, a couple of things. I found this fascinating because you talk about the um, uh, the dialects, uh, you call it in the microbial world that we really haven't been focusing on the way many of these different species communicate with one another. But again, a very important topic uh, I've done a couple of shows on recently has just been on this antimicrobial resistance problem that we're facing as a world. Uh, we have, you know, I don't know, it's killing more people than malaria and tuberculosis and um, uh we're not developing antibiotics anymore. We haven't been developing antibiotics for decades. Quorum sensing is one of those areas that, you know, sort of the, in that antivirulence basket that people have talked about in the past, but maybe we just haven't had the right targets for it. You seem to have um, really uncovered quite a few possibilities here and sort of a, looking at this new way of, of this language that occurs in quorum sensing. Can you just say a few words about this? I can. And I will. So basically, a few words is that a current sensing are a molecular system that allow different entities to uh, act collectively based on the density of some molecule, which basically is a proxy of some action these entities have made in yeah. the past or of the abundance of these entities in a given environment. And what is especially striking with the research nowadays on current sensing to me is that um, it was long associated with cellular life only. So cells would eventually count other cells. Right. 
and when there were there would be many cells of the same kind, for example, in the place, and cells would modify their behavior. They would become more virulent or less virulent. They would start yeah. create a biofilm or not create yeah. a biofilm, depending on what. If you're alone and you want to make a biofilm, which is a colony of many, many other bacteria, then yeah. no. <laughs> but if there are many uh, like you around, maybe it's, maybe it's a good idea to um, become in this title association, which offers lots, lots of advantages for, for the cells. But what people have discovered is that not only cells have current sensing systems, but also mobile genetic elements. Viruses also have current sensing systems, which is uh, fascinating. So viruses can- I didn't, I didn't know that. Sort of, <laughs> sort of count how many uh, bacteria they've killed. And, and mm. that will uh, help some uh, viruses to basically decide to become less virulent. And you know, a virus can enter in a cell, explode it. It's called a lytic cycle. Or it can enter in a cell and hide yeah. and not kill the cell right now. It's called a lysogenic cycle. So based on how many former killings there have been uh, uh, in the bacterial population by the viruses, the viruses may decide to go from the killing mode, explode the cells to the hiding mode. Do not kill all the prey now because otherwise then the virus has no prey left and it's for the virus to die. So that I think is a very strong discovery. And not only that, um, some viruses have more than one way to count things. So they have more than one quorum sensing system. They mm -hmm. are more like two quorum sensing systems. So that's totally crazy. But it's not that there is only one virus that can do that. It's like there are hundreds of viruses. Mm. The process of being published, we hope, that uh, can basically count various aspects of what is important for the survival uh, using multiple quorum sensing systems. And so we are in a world, and I will leave you with that, and that where we have lots of communications going on that we were not suspecting before. Communication mm -hmm. between viruses, communication between cells, sometimes cells from the same species, sometimes cells from different species. We also have um, some uh, entities that can basically spy on others. They will not communicate and send molecules, but they will uh, receive the molecules that have been sent by others, and so they will benefit from the information. So there are, you know, all sorts of communication spying taking place in the microbial world that we still need to uncover better. Whether this will help us to better uh, fight antibiotic resistance, I have no immediate idea. It could, it could, because uh, basically if we can interfere with the normal consensing uh, best decision to uh, unite for some pathogenic bacteria, then we can prevent them from uniting, which yeah. may be good. But, um, uh, uh, but I'm not an expert on this. What I'm just saying is that as a person who is fond of networks, we could uh, imagine drawing networks of potential communication between microbes in different environments. Standing. Based on the sharing of quorum sensing, based on the sharing of quorum system sensing, or yep. based on the sharing of receptors, people able to hear, to spy, but not necessarily to talk. Really fascinating. Um, Eric, what what's... um. What what else is happening uh, for twenty twenty three? I mean, you obviously you, you've been very active publishing already this year. Um, what's coming up in terms of uh, other initiatives that I did not ask about? Uh, con new conferences, uh, places that we can uh, meet you, listen to you. Anything else that I, I did not touch on that you want to mention? Please uh, tell us. 
Or any new books that you're you're going to be publishing. I'm going to give you a very honest answer. I have three kids, so writing books is very complicated. I love to write uh, books for kids. Um, And uh, that takes a publisher who is willing to publish a science-based book because it's basically to share knowledge with kids. So I have to find a publisher who could do that. I had one who was excellent, but it was just bought by another company. So um, what is coming next? More on evolution of aging, using networks on microbes. More um, on dark matter. We won't speak about this uh, today. Uh, and um, a question about whether there is some irony in the origin of the genes that are getting us sick nowadays. Because presumably when they evolved first, they were fulfilling different functions. For example, genes associated with age, associated diseases that uh, affect us at ages that in nature, in the past, our ancestors almost never uh, uh, experienced. Probably those genes were encoded for something different. They were not just there to give us, uh, I don't know, Alzheimer. Or... So um, I'm curious about whether there is some ironic story uh, in the recycling of these genes um, mm. that now do us bad things when old, but when they were invented, were probably uh, contributing to very different processes. Um, so, yes, uh, genome modeling, microbial dark matter, new conferences, when we can, for sure. <laughs> In Paris, always, as three kids, I don't move a lot. And if you want to listen to me, you can listen to recent uh, talks I've been giving. In Chile, that was the exper- exception where I traveled, for Congress of Futuro 2023. And right. I'm giving there a talk on the evolution of aging that uh, is accessible to, to the lay audience. Uh, I think with that, I thank you very much for your interest and being my bigger fan. Yeah, it's a, um, you know, as you point out in the uh, in the materials on your site, I mean, there's just so much, you know, the dark areas that we have not explored and, you know, the way you connect it all um, via your work on, on both, you know, the microbial front and sort of the, the the interactome concepts is just it's fascinating me i i, I think we'll, we will need to do a follow-up episode um maybe later this year and into the continuation of some of this we have fascinating themes um for everybody uh, that is going to be uh listening to this episode of our show across the various podcast networks or uh, watching on the YouTube channel. Again, you've been listening to Dr. Eric Baptiste, Research Director at French National Center for Scientific Research, CNRS, also Co-Director, Adaptation, Integration, Reticulation, Evolutionary Laboratory. Uh, We will put links uh, in the bio so that you can uh, find Eric and and follow his work. Uh, We'll also uh, check out his is, are, there, are the books only in French or are there, are there English versions yet? Oh, they're, they're only in French, but if you yeah. want to get someone who is interested and translate them, I'm all happy with this. Cool. I took five years of French in, in, in high school. I probably couldn't read it that well, but awesome. Anyway, Eric, I, I want to thank you um, for really taking the time out of your schedule today to, to come talk and educate us about everything you're doing. And uh, obviously, thank you for doing it because it needs to be done. And as we like to say, as again, on our show here, you know, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for everybody via uh, this type of work. A really fascinating story. Thank you very much.